you're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Book Talk Today podcast. Today we are joined by Tom Bergen. Tom is a journalist at Reuters and an award-winning journalist and today we are discussing his book Free Lunch Thinking How Economics Ruins the Economy. Tom and I had a wonderful conversation about his book. The book is a technical look at free lunch thinking and we discussed economic models, we discussed the establishment of different ways of economic thought, supply and demand. It's quite technical ways of economic thinking, but we also discussed equality, income, and we also discuss the equality in the economic system and what can be done to combat this. I hope you enjoy it. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's lovely to be here. You're welcome. So when I read the book, I studied economics at school and I studied it partially at university. My my discipline was politics and we did some option modules and economics and reading this was a throwback to the economic <laughs> models <laughs> that, that, I, that I was reading about at school. So I think as a, as a place to start, I think would be to talk about what is free lunch thinking. Great. So, well, yes, thank you. The the title of the book, the, the main title is Free Lunch Thinking, and it's taken from a phrase that was popularized by a very famous economist called Milton Friedman. And he wrote a book uh, which used the title, um, There's No Such Thing as a Free Lunch, which was an old phrase that had been around, but it was one that, that he popularized. And I guess what he meant by that was that sometimes in life, in, in politics and economics, society as a whole tries to avoid some cost or burden. And it, and, it, and it tries to get rid of that by shifting it on to somebody else. And what he's saying is that at the end of the day, it, 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 the staying derives from being in a bar, I believe, uh, where they used to dole out free lunches. Uh, and the idea was, of course, to keep the drinkers there all day. <laughs> um, but of course, the, the cost of the lunch was reflected in the price of the, of the alcohol. Now, what the point that Friedman was making was that's the way life works. When you try to avoid the cost of lunch, you're going to pay for the price of your booze or whatever else. And he was saying that in society, we do this sometimes. So we try to enjoy a benefit that we might not otherwise have, or we try to avoid a cost like a tax and we shift it on to somebody else. Or maybe we, we, we don't shift it on to a person. We try and shift it on to a company because, hey, companies don't vote. So that's going to be an easy way out. And his point was, when we try and do that, we sometimes not not just don't make fail to make the cost disappear. We also perhaps increase the size of that cost overall to society. So he was saying it's a it's it's a damaging um, exercise to get into to try and avoid free lunches, try and enjoy free lunches. Now with the book, and what I'm doing is, and just the basic structure of the book is, I look at different ideas, broad ideas that influence policy, mainly around the economy, but also in areas like health policy and the environment mm. uh, and some other areas. And uh, look at the way in which we 
these ideas, and I challenge those and say, yeah, this, we make policies that, that impact, you know, probably billions of people's lives uh, based on these so-called truisms, but they actually don't work. Yeah, they don't work. The, the track record shows that, uh, and also looking at the only reason that we do believe they work is because of their, their conform with the broader theory, not because we went out and discovered something that made us think they work. Mm. And so the, but these issues, what, what these eight areas have in common is that they are all uh, orthodox economics beliefs. And these have become the accepted wisdom of the economics profession. And th these are then imparted to policymakers who have largely taken them on and enacted policies. Now, what I'm saying, the connection with that to the title is that there's a certain irony that, that, that people who are followers of Friedman and indeed Friedman himself, who would generally say, we're the people who present hard truths to the world. Mm. Uh, we, we tell them you, you can't have a free lunch. Well, actually, if you look at the remedies that they, they suggest, that's exactly what they are. They frequently are free lunches. You know, you have things like people saying, you know, if we just get rid of all this regulation, we'll avoid lots of costs on business and costs on consumers. Everything will be much better. Business can grow quicker and employ more people. Uh, products in the in in the shops would be cheaper. So there's a free lunch. You know, we're just not mm -hmm. not 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 thinking about the fact that actually these regulations also avoid costs. Of course, a really famous area of free lunch what I would call free lunch thinking is where, which is to say this idea that we think we can have free lunches um, is the, the area around supply side economics and this idea that you can cut taxes and enjoy an increase in revenue. It's counterintuitive uh, and also wrong. Nonetheless, from about the 1970s, this became the accepted wisdom of the Republican party in the United States and to a large extent, the accepted wisdom of the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom. It's not true that all Conservatives or all Republicans believe this, but it is a very widely held view uh, among Republican leaders, certainly the, the Republican leadership in the United States. But here, Boris Johnson has repeatedly defended supply-side economics and the Laffer curve. And this, is, this was a very big break, as it happens, from old-school financial fiscal conservatism. So this is not an inherent part of, of, of conservatism necessarily, but it's something that was adopted from the 1970s on. But that's in a really good example of, we think that we can have an easy solution to a really complicated and difficult problem. In this specific case, we can have more revenue with less pain. Uh, so that's that's the idea with, with the, the main title of the book, Free Lunch Thinking. The, the sort of the, the 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 subtitle is how economics ruins the the economy, and the idea is obviously there's a degree of joke there, but the point is I, I, I'm trying to be slightly amusing perhaps, but also the main key point here is that we do these things, uh, the eight the eight truisms are lead to policies with the aim that it will make the economy grow more quickly or, or make us better off in different ways. They they don't specifically have equality or any you know, human, you know, social outcome objective. Um, they're quite specific. It's really about making us richer. And what I'm saying is actually, in this case, they don't work and they ruin the economy by not making us richer. And, and the particular impact on that certain people can be felt very hard. And a clear example of that, of course, is I talk a lot about the minimum wage. Uh, one chapter is about the minimum wage. And 
that was a situation where orthodox economic thinking, uh, which was held by both people on the right and the left of politics for decades, uh, held off people uh, getting, you know, more modest wa uh, wages, uh, sorry, more, more, more livable wages at the lower end of the earning scale because in the United Kingdom, we didn't have a minimum wage and in the United States, there was huge resistance to increasing that. So for a lot of people, uh, it might seem a bit harsh to say ruining the economy, but for a lot of people, they weren't partak partaking in the economic gains because of this economic orthodoxy. Definitely. And the thing that I liked about the book was a consistent thread about the fact that I felt like, especially in the subtitle of the book as well, um, it's humorous, but obviously there is a truism there in the sense that when I was studying it, it almost felt like there was a politicization of economics. And when you read about history, whether you read about the Thatcher era or the Republican era with Ronald Reagan, you almost think as economics has become politicized in the sense that the information can be distorted dependent on your political views rather than the models or the data itself. Indeed, I mean, you know, the dominant political wisdom of the day has been very influential on economics. And what's interesting is the models that people hold to be true uh, themselves can be determined by by the political wisdom, which when you think about it on the face of it, that sounds, oh, well, of course it does. No, no, think about what's really meant to be going on here. Uh, economics claims to be a science, uh, okay, a mm. social science, but it claims to have the same uh, process and the same inherent rules of behavior that a science does. And so consequently, the understanding is that we make advances and what we generally or what the economic community accept to be true is something that's, that's revealed through a, a, a gradual process of of, of invention and discovery. Okay, sometimes you might have a jump, but generally you're building on previous knowledge and gradually getting smarter. That's what happens with medicine or in physics. Uh, but in economics, that's actually not what happens. You know, the, the economic community can believe something, you know, to a large extent, because that's the consistent political feeling and wisdom of the day. Or it can even believe something because, well, we haven't really studied this area before, but we understand that the world is determined by supply and demand curves. So, well, this is a financial transaction. So it must be determined by supply and demand curves. An example of this is the, the minimum wage, where it was absolutely held to be the case that bringing in a minimum wage uh, would, would reduce employment. And the economists believed that for decades. And the reason they believed that was because it had to. It had to, if you saw the world in this sort of supply and demand curve um, to describe the labor markets. So that was an example of there was not even a pretense really about information. People believed uh, that just it had to. So, so it would do. If The more you looked at it, you would find evidence of that. But they didn't believe it because they had found evidence. They believed it because they expected if they were able to look in a more detailed way, they could find evidence. And, you know, in, with respect to the political mood of the time, we saw in the post-war era, we saw a large expansion of governments on both sides of um, of the Atlantic. You, know, you had things like the National Health Service coming in, into formation here in, in the UK. Just gradually, governments did a lot more. You know, more infrastructure was being built by governments, etc. 
And also the economy was just ticking along nicely, you know, actually it was picking on very strongly. It was sort of 3% growth uh, typically per capita, um, you know, significantly above long-term averages. And the government was becoming more involved in the economy. So people thought, accepted, well, you know, government is, is, is uh, pretty good at helping run the economy. And then uh, you, you have the 1970s and that growth tapers off and people suddenly think, well, you know, maybe it's not government. And in, in the United States in particular, you had the emergence of a sort of anti-government um, mm. thinking and certainly influenced uh, economists. And economists started to look for evidence that governments were causing harm in the economy. And they started to produce studies which showed the larger the government was. Um, so if that was in terms of tax to GDP ratios or spending to GDP ratios, they, they, they were saying, oh, we found that, that slows growth. And, you know, that was something that was a huge demand for those kinds of studies and they were duly produced. Of course, then everybody took a breather and they started looking at them, even in, indeed the people who produced that sort of first wave of mm. studies in the 1980s and said, actually, no, now when we look at it, not really, it doesn't work that way. But, you know, the damage is done. That information feeds into the, the public consciousness and, and sort of stereotypes build up. Do you feel like there's an inherent flaw then in the way that economics is pervaded as a science then? Because it can't be tested in the same way that perhaps physics can or, or chemistry can. Well, definitely, I have sympathy for economists in that they're not able to isolate a sample group of people and kind of run an experiment, then run it again. You know, how do you, if you, you know, what's the impact of interest rate changes or tax changes? You know, to really, to really kind of corral people off is just not possible so i so i i i understand that and i think in the book i acknowledge that How, however you can't fail to do that and then claim to have the same level of certainty that someone does in physics and there's a great quote that i cite in the book is by robert solo who's a famous economist mm -hmm. And, and he talks about how the best and brightest in economics want to perceive uh, uh, economics as being the physics of society. That's they thought this machine, we machine, we can understand how it actually works, and you kind of tweak a lever here and you know pull a knob or whatever, the other way around, isn't it? Um, uh, um, uh, there, and we can we can make these things happen. And and I think that's problematic that economists don't acknowledge their own ignorance or, or the paucity in their own evidence. And there's one kind of thing that particularly troubles me. And, and this is something that was highlighted by, by uh, Ronald Coase, who was a, a paragon of the Chicago School, a very right-wing conservative um, group of economists. And he won a Nobel Prize. He was British, but he, he lived a lot of his, his life in the United States. And uh, what an interesting figure, because he, he lived for such a long period. He, he's over 100. He was still, you know, talking mm. and giving speeches, etc. And but he, he talked about something he was very uncomfortable with, which is what he called blackboard economics. And he said a big problem was that economists really are focused on the blackboard and drawing equations and um, looking at data sets, but not actually going out into the world and seeing the way that people and, and businesses really behave. And I found that amazing. And just as a journalist, if we are writing about a phenomenon, it's absolutely required that you would find examples of this phenomenon. But economists can, can conduct studies where they say that millions of people have 
change their behavior in response to a policy change. And that could be, oh, we find millions of people who've quit smoking because of an increase in tobacco taxes. And they'll just determine that without actually ever gone out and really examine you know, people's decision making. Or they'll say that businesses have responded in, in this kind of a way to a change in regulation. And usually when they say that, what's really going on there is they have found a correlation in some data. And on that basis, they make a jump to saying this is the response, a behavioral response to the policy. That, that is self-evidently a problematic intellectual process. Uh, you know, the finding of a correlation, one of the things I say in the book is that, that, that in the financial markets, people joke about this. They joke about the way that people uh, use correlations to, identi to identify causation, to say, oh, that's the two are linked. Because you can find so many causation, or sorry, so many uh, correlations in life. Yeah. And it could be the stock market rises on every second yeah. Tuesday when it rains. It doesn't mean that if it rains on a second Tuesday, the stock market's going to go up. Um, and uh, so, but, but in economics, unfortunately, those kinds of correlations are, can, can often uh, be found to, to, to be proof. And that's something that, that I think from the process issue is not really excusable. So I'm, I'm sorry if economists can't, uh, you know, conduct experiments and run them again and again. I mean, yeah. that's fine. But, but to, to claim that, that you have spotted causation uh, when you haven't found a single person or example of, of that is, is to me a sign of, of really a kind of a weak process on the part of other professionals involved. Definitely. One of the things that I was read in the book as well from the neoclassical school was the fact of the rational actor, which was something that I used to read when I was studying economics and the rational actor. And they assume that individuals act rationally. But if you were to study psychology, you would know that human beings are very irrational people. They act on their emotions most of the time. They don't think through things. They just mostly do things out of impulse. So why do you think there's still this thought, especially in the neoclassical school, that there is such thing as the quote unquote rational actor? What's well, interesting, I mean, I think that, that what I say in the, in the book is that, that I think the biggest flaw of the concept of the rational actor is the narrow way in which economics defines the rational actor. Mm. And primarily, so the, the rational actor is somebody who wants to maximize their utility, improve their, in particular, material life as best as they can. That said, also Gary Becker believed that people used economic theories to, to choose their marriage partner. So maybe it goes beyond that. But, but certainly in terms of their material life, uh, they, they want to improve that as much as possible and, and maximize their utility. Now, what I would say is that even if you accept that's true and that people are pretty good at judging that, and that's a problem because people are often not good at judging what's in their best interest mm. because they don't have perfect information. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, should I buy a coat, you know, heavy coat this winter? You know, I don't know what the weather's going to be like. I mean, you know, so yeah. there's, there's one example, but it, we don't know the future. So there, that can be a problem. But, but here's the thing that, that economics, when it defines maximum, maximizing your utility, your utility, it's really anchored in a narrow set of circumstances that human beings are are supposed to take account of. And specifically, it's about price changes. So for example, if the price of a product goes up, you're meant to reduce your consumption of that. Now, the reality is that, that 
that we don't have a um, a uniform and consistent preference between goods. Those preferences change over time, as you said, depending on how you feel. Maybe taste. Mm. It. fashion can impact it changing circumstances in your life can impact it we've also in truth a lot of the purchase decisions that we make every day are fixed you know we can't change the school we want to send our kids to because there's one with a cheaper bus fare a little bit you know available next week no you've made that choice that's it you know for you know x amount of years mm. you know we can't change jobs very easily this is this is you know an area we you know the labor markets and how people make choices about how they, they you know, at their working uh, their work choices we're very constricted about that if if our uh, boss you know if we want more money we can't just work longer hours it doesn't work mm-hmm. like okay some jobs you get paid piecemeal but most jobs don't offer that kind of flexibility so the problem with the rational actor I mean what I consider the biggest biggest problem with it is that even if you walk some of the way with the economists and say, right, yes, we all do want to be better off. And we want to enjoy more free time and we want to have more money so we can feel comfortable. Even if you accept that, you wouldn't get very far along the path of the rational actor uh, premise with economists because they've just ignored most of the realities that that actor faces. And that's the bit, and that's what I mentioned earlier, Ronald Coase and Ronald Coase really lamented the way in which the the economics had been reduced to a study of price theory. And all everybody was interested in was the way in which human beings respond to prices. And throughout the book, that's the theme I come back to again and again. It's just not sensible to say it's rational for people to respond in a proportionate way to price changes. I will not stop driving you know 10 percent. the fuel goes up 10 percent. you know the driving i do is pretty much fixed i'll have to give something else up i mean that's the reality for most people you have to drive to work if you don't have a choice about that if fuel goes up and this is not just a, an elastic you know there's a higher elasticity on things you know but then again that's claiming a, a proportional um a proportional preference it, it doesn't exist our preferences change depend on these different factors that come into play and economics doesn't take 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 account of them so i i, I would agree with you the the rational actor that that economists envisage is just not rational in any kind of a way it's somebody who who operates in an incredibly blinkered way yeah they should change it to just a rational actor and then just be done <laughs> yeah. with it it seems like they're, they're chasing their tail on that one um, which, which I think is was in, is interesting because, like you said, it feels as if there are they're modelling today's society, they're modelling what's happening right now by these models that which are established, but the establishment of those models perhaps isn't. It's not like a constitution or it's not like a set of laws like we discussed. That they're things that change over time. One thing that I want to discuss was in relation to that the income effect. So you discussed in the book, you, you gave some time to discuss the income effect. And there's obviously discussion around reducing working hours for the sense of health and well-being and how the reduction in the working hours over time has actually been correlated to an increase in the actual income, in, in general income. So could you explain that effect in, in more detail for, for those that are listening that perhaps hasn't, haven't read the book? 
Sure. Uh, so this is one of the areas for economics, I think, and a lot of people would argue really falls down is around labor markets. Uh, because the question is, is there a labor market the way that we envisage labor markets, mm. uh, markets, namely an upward rising supply curve, which is to say that if you increase the price of something, people will want to supply more of it. And then on the other hand, you've got the demand curve. And if you increase in the price, the amount, um, sorry, it goes up that way, the amount people want to, want to supply um, decreases. I want to purchase decreases. Now, in in the uh, in in the supply of your labor in the labor market, if you want to think, it's kind of an odd way to think about it. But it, it insofar as we insofar as we work, if if we think of our labor like a product, the idea is that these uh, the, the laws of the supply and demand will define our behavior. This is orthodox economics. If you go into the Bank of England website, they will say these are the laws of gravity of economics, which I got to say is in between amusing and frustrating because you know, that Mark Carney, as it was then when you put this on the website, um, thinks that economics is the same as Newton's laws. I mean, that's, wow, it's a big claim. But, um, you do know, you feel, do you feel like that's self-aggrandizement more than it is? Oh, well, I think it's in the book. Without question, it's totally self-aggrandizing. I mean, it's, it's massive, massive arrogance. I mean, people are saying, you know, of course, look, I mean, if you say to me, if I'm allowed to claim that I have the you know, authority of infallibility of the Pope, yeah, sure, I'll take that. You know, you can listen to me a pine in the pub all night. I mean, you're going to actually give me you know, jobs and positions of influence, which is what economists have, in, have enjoyed because they have received not quite papal infallibility but they've they've been uh, awarded a huge authority on, on subjects so yes they they, they want to say that uh, the, these economic laws like the laws of supply and demand are like the laws of gravity well they might be the laws of gravity of economics but it just tells you a lot about what laws are in economics not about you know you know physical truths in the in the labor market in this in this area of of the supply and demand for labor when it comes to the supply of labor, again, I know it's a little bit unusual to talk about providing the hours of our time in the way that we might talk about supplying widgets or bags of corn. But that's the way economists think about it. They talk about, so we will decide to work depending on how much we get paid. And if we get paid more, we'll be more willing to work. That's one of the, that's, that's a theory about the way markets work. If somebody pays you more for something because it's more profitable to engage in that activity, you will want to do more of it. Um, now, the problem with that, of course, in labor markets, so it doesn't seem to work like that. Like it, basically, because over time, what we've had is real wages have gone up a lot. So that the price of labor has gone up, um, but the supply of labor has gone down. Now, what I mean by that, the supply of labor has gone down, is that not that there are fewer people working, obviously the population has increased, but the number of hours that the or average person works every week or every year has reduced consistently and significantly over the past hundred years. So there we have something that totally confounds economic thinking. So wait a second, the price, the real return on doing something has increased, but we're actually seeking to do less of it. And that's something that I think confounds the these these uh, laws of gravity of economics. So economists have had to come up with another explanation. They say, ah, okay, well that's true there that that looks to be going against 
basic economic principles. But actually, not so. There's something else going on here. And what they say is that while there is a, a pricing effect thereof that the you know we want to um, we want to uh, get more money for labor that's attractive to us. However, because we get more money for the hours that we've worked, we're now richer. And because we're richer, we can afford to buy certain things. Now that might be luxury foods or foreign holidays, but also it would include free time. So, excuse me. So basically, what we're saying is, and now of course the way that you buy free time is by working less. So what they're saying is that the richer we get, we have what's called an income effect, which makes us want to work fewer hours because what's going on there is we're able to afford free time. We can feed ourselves maybe and, and educate our children, et cetera, et cetera, with maybe working 35 hours a week. So we don't need to do 60 hours a week like we may have done 150 years ago. And what they're saying is that so that that's still we've got the, the situation where human beings are still being rational. They're still behaving in a way that's consistent with economic theory. Um, um, and, and so what I think the income effect to me is one of those really grasping at straws to preserve the concept of the rational individual and, the, um, and, and this whole perception of the world working as, as a supply, you know, define all transactions and working as a financial transaction, all financial transactions being dictated by supply and demand curves. Mm. The problem is it's just, you know, it doesn't seem to, it's very difficult to say, you can, you can ad hoc things all you like, but here's the thing, if you understand the labor market, there's a pretty simple way to understand it. Every day, every working day, almost everybody who can work goes to work. That's what's happened for hundreds of years. And so you to talk about what's motivating them or oh increase in prices change it. No. <laughs> you can try and map, map that off price changes, map it off whatever you like. But what happens is pretty much 90 plus percent of people have always gone out to work every day. And uh you know, so to say that this is a price driven, that people are motivated by pricing, well, you know, if everybody does the same thing all the time, it's very difficult to say, in my mind at least, that they're responding to some changing stimuli. The mm. stimuli have changed quite a lot. You know, the people have had a big price change, but they're still behaving the same way. Mm. So I think that, um, you know, insofar as, the, you know, their employment levels. Now, with respect to the the, the idea of, of, of the hours worked, I mean, naturally there, I mean, you, you know, to call call it an income effect as you like to try and to try and preserve something. But you know, the reality is we've gotten richer, so we can afford to work less, and we're working less. This is not some response to to stimuli to try and attach some sort of supply and demand curve to it. You still can't get away from the fact that people are not responding to the prices in the way that you predict that they would do. And I think you know, it's, it's an example of one of the what I would say the broader failure of economics that you know they just can't engage with that and say that it doesn't really work very well here and and, and you know you know several uh, you know many you know great economists or well-known regarded economists have raised the question of the labor market and uh, I think you know it's 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 a pity that it's one of those examples that looks incredibly weak as as evidence of their of supply and demand curves determining things 
but economists just uh, won't let it go. And, and we still seem to be, uh, and, and other areas I look at the book, even when it comes to labor market regulation, it still is influenced by this concept that we have, economists have to see labor market like every other kind of market in uh, terms of supply and demand curves. And I think there was three factors you, you talked about in the book that they don't look at as well, which was deregulation, uh, globalization and changing technologies in regards to the labor market. Is, is that correct? Well, I think that, you know, there, there, are, certain, there are certain aspects of um, certain theories that one can, can, can look at that um, the, the idea is, is economists want to be ex- able to explain everything through the, their framework. And so, for example, so basically everything has to be, and this is indeed one of, one of, the, one of the difficulties with economics. The world is incredibly complicated. The economic world is complicated. It is arguably more complicated than the physical world. And what I mean by that is that human beings are independent actors. So that makes the task of economics more difficult. Nonetheless, economics seeks to make universal rules. So, so one, as I say, there's a difficulty that these rules, that economists seek to apply them as being immutable, but also that they're universal and the universality gets more difficult the bigger the system and the, and the more complex it is. And that's one of the difficulties. And we get, get these, these things whereby uh, someone will say, oh, this theory is a bit better explaining adoption of technology or this, 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 this theory is, you know, can, it can bring in this element. But at the end of the day, you can still be left with saying is that this overall architecture of the model doesn't really well explain what's going on here. Because it, the issue with economics is that it's trying to explain human decision-making. It's claiming to explain human decision-making. And as I said, human decision-making is, is very complicated. And if you want to nudge people in a certain direction, if you want to encourage them to eat more healthily or to do anything else, uh, you know, it's you, you devise these policies. But, but claiming you understand human beings when you don't and claiming that they behave in a very predictable way subject to influence by a very narrow set of factors i think doesn't really doesn't really help anyone and that's unfortunately that one of one of the main shortfalls of economic theory that's what i think in microeconomics that the principal agent problem deals with and and nasim taleb um the the philosopher he's written many books has this phrase which i like it says it's very easy to macro bullshit bullshit, which i thought is a great one and and he talks about the principal agent problem about how if you understand the principal agent problem which is a microeconomic uh theory uh, a lot of issues can be resolved in the sense of understanding people because a lot of time it is the principal agent problem that that deals with this so do you think enough companies and institutions give credence to the principal agent problem or do we need to have more of a discussion about how that plays a role in decision making or economics in general i think you know i think i think the principal agent problem there is obviously an issue. I, mean, I say in the, in the book, if you go back to the Old Testament, uh, well, sorry, the New Testament, gosh, yeah. okay, former altar boy, I should get this right, <laughs> got that right. But, um, I th- you know, Jesus, I think it's the, the story of the talents. Jesus told the, the story of the talents. And we see this issue of the, 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 that problem of people behaving in their own interest 
or not and it's it's a it's a it's a real thing that obviously people are motivated to to manage their own interests before others if they're given a job they always do it with the, the eye to their own future before other people's nonetheless i think that one of the things in the book i do think is that that an over focus on that problem and the attempt to solve that problem with respect to executive remuneration has been one of the, the big commercial failures of the past several decades. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that specifically is that the there was a if we look today at executive pay, the we've had an explosion of executive pay over the past. I mean really it started in the 1980s. Uh, it's really interesting because actually we had an explosion of executive pay in the 1920s and we had something which now everybody says is, is impossible, which is a massive contraction in executive pay. No, it's happened before. It could happen again. So um, that's that's one issue to keep, that we should keep in mind when we discuss this issue. But over the period, the post-war period, really, well, actually from the late 1930s on, there was a huge stagnation in in executive pay. I mean, I say stagnation like it's a bad thing. It just, it rose in line with other wages. It, you know, there was no um, particular spikes or um, massive upward trajectory. Nonetheless, at that point in time, uh, US corporations in particular, which, which we've got great data on the pay and, and, the, uh, and the performance, performed really, really well. And, you know, it depends really, how, whatever way you want to look at it, if you want to look at share prices, markets performed well. If you want to look at profitability, earnings per share, uh, corporate profitability generally rose. If you want to look at the the dominance of market dominance of particularly US companies, as I say, you know, very strong. So there was really no problem uh, in American business at that period. And pay was tipping along, you know, nice. Everybody was having in the economy, we're having you know pretty good above inflationary pay rises, but nothing outlandish on the part of chief executives. Then you hit the 1970s, and you know the the, the Western economy had a lot of problems. You had the oil price crash really accentuated these things and, and brought them out to the fore. But some of them were longer longer term, and you saw particularly in the United States a stagnation of the stock market. You had a big crash here as well in in the early 1970s. But particularly in the US, you had the situation where the market had been doing wonderfully for decades previously, pretty much, I mean, not quite interrupted, but it's very clear long-term upward trend, and then a period of stagnation. Now, economists, of course, as I said, you know, and particularly at that time, and were very, you know, beginning to be very focused on prices and the importance of prices and you know, also the idea that markets were always right. So they're looking at the stock market and particularly I look at uh, Rochester University and some people there. For Rochester University is one of the, the freshwater uh, universities of uh, in around the Great Lakes. Obviously, most notably Chicago is the one. They tend to be more conservative than the, the universities on, on on the coast. But um, but in any case, Rochester, you had a number of people there who started to look at this, and they said, "Well, we can see well markets are efficient because that's the way markets are. They're always right, and the stock market." is 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 weak you know companies share prices are low i say well if markets are right well then there's got to be a problem here the market is giving us a signal that companies are doing something wrong they started to look at that and again this quite they were doing that through the prism of the prices determine everything and they looked at and said wait a second gosh you know chief executives don't 
have a you know very variable pay it goes tips up over time but it doesn't seem to be very linked to anything that you know stuff that happens to the company and they said that uh you know if they, they devise this idea so well as, as one of them michael jensen said well, if you pay people uh, executives like uh, bureaucrats you're going to get bureaucratic performance and mm. they were saying well we've got pretty poor performance over recent years in the stock market so what we need to do is encourage Man, uh, managers to behave like shareholders to get rid of this agency uh, principal problem mm. and they were ignored the fact of course that entirely that for three decades after the second world war you hadn't had this sort of performance related pay and options linked pay etc and that corporate profits had performed incredibly strongly no they, mm. they looked at that very narrow period and said bang we've got a problem market's giving us a signal and it's all down to the 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 agent principle problem um i don't think there was a problem uh, i think that um as i say you know you had a period of weakness in the stock market if you look at what was going on there that was a confidence problem we know that because corporate earnings didn't you know fall into a hole uh, eps just was low and that was reported on widely at the time just that the market got less confident because markets are not efficient they're not always right so we ended up trying to solve a problem that didn't exist, and we did it partly through through the this prism of the 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 the, uh, the principal agent problem. So I think that's a case maybe where it's been applied with gusto and hugely enthusiastically, um, excessively, and led to a situation where, where where executives get paid on a level that previously was unimagined, and we haven't seen a commensurate uh, improvement in performance. So I think that's one of the areas maybe where it hasn't uh, really really stood out on its own, unfortunately. Mm. With the with the executive pay, you talked about the fact that Professor Jensen says that the executive pay isn't high enough. So where where does that go with executive pay? Because I know there's a lot of backlash at the moment to executive pay, the fact that they get paid um, in proportion to the workers an obscene amount from a percentage wise. So where do you think that goes in the actual field in sense of in the sense of in practice rather than in economic theory? Well, I think, first of all, we, it, it's useful to understand the theory that drove it, because I think that can help inform the practice. And so one of the things I'm saying in the book, look, we've gotten to this position because we have based really on an idea. The idea was if you want to get better performance, better outcomes for shareholders, you need to offer executives more upside. You want to tie their pay to the performance of the firm, and you can do that mm. through options. Now, We've tried that. We haven't had the better performance. If you look at it, you shouldn't have thought that in the first place because previous experience wouldn't have led you to conclude that. The correlation was weak. It was incredibly only established through a very narrow time frame by examining a very narrow time frame. So first of all, I think it's worth saying, you know, it's important to say we got here by believing something that wasn't right. And that certainly allows you to leave this place. And in terms of moving forward, I think that it is first of all important for investors to to accept that. And one of the reasons that that executive pay continues to rise at very high levels is because investors, particularly institutional investors, do still uh, seek to drive improved performance by paying more. I'm not sure entirely clear why they why they keep on thinking this, but I read a lot of 
research notes from cell site analysts and others, and they still seem to think, and buy side people, uh, which are investors, and they still seem to hope, live in hope that I, if I pay this guy more, he'll mm-hmm. deliver better performance. But if you think about it, the chief executive's role is to really think about the future and 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 the, the sort of twenty year time horizon for companies and make fundamental strategic decisions and you know realistically that's about judgment and as one former executive who's a academic now at, at harvard so you know there's, there's really nothing you can pay people to make them better decision makers and uh, i think you, you it's difficult to get a get away if you accept that 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 fact, um, you will look to other other solutions. So I think the thing is that investors need to come on board. They need to scrutinize this more. They also need to think a bit more about uh, getting value for money. Um, the reality is, if somebody's recruited internally to be chief executive, you know they're not going anyplace else in most cases. The the supply and demand argument for paying people more is incredibly weak. So I think if you're thinking about your shareholders, that you you should you know think about getting are you getting value for money. The other thing, of course, is that investors, if they own the company, why can't they vote and pay? I don't get that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think that when the game is stacked in a way that doesn't allow the market to work, I mean, mm. why, surely it's capitalism and, and the free market for investors to vote on on how their capital is used. It's a very strange form of capitalism where the managers uh, get to vote on everything to do with the capital. So I think those those are areas I think that one is to accept that a lot of things we think about this are not accurate and that gives us a freedom intellectually to to explore other options. But I think that there's a huge huge area here for, for legislation to be more active. We've seen some things on that, but I think I think that there's there's more that could be done. Definitely. On the judgment factor, I thought that was interesting in the sense that their role is to ensure the longevity in a, let's say, a decade time span rather than perhaps whether they're going to make their share price in the next quarter because that doesn't usually <laughs> elicit good judgment, does it? No, not at all. And, and you know, I, I, I mean, interesting, I approached this through the view that, that I thought that Jensen's view of humankind and, um, and particularly of executives was incredibly harsh. You know, I've met a lot as a, as a corporate reporter over the last few decades, like I've met, you know, a lot of chief executives and, and I don't have a, a negative view of them. Um, but I, I certainly don't have the view of them that that Jensen would have, which was that unless you gave them a very strong carrot, uh, they would just sit at their desk, put their feet in the desk, do nothing and, and try and get invites to gala dinners, uh, but not do anything like hard work unless they, they had a contractual way in which they were really tied into that. You know, the reality is most of them, you know, work pretty hard, well, work, you know, very hard. They They do their best. To, to do to to achieve things, but the interesting thing, you know, Jensen was in one of these you know, University of Rochester people. You know, in Rochester there are two companies which are really great examples, and I cite these in the book that because um, I went and visited them, and you had Xerox and Polaroid, and these were companies that that had just jumped dive into this idea of of executive pay that was tied to the shareholder outcomes, and these were companies where. You know, the, the, the chief executives came on board. You had 
short period of some some share price appreciations, people getting paid phenomenal amounts of money, phenomenal amounts of money compared to what the predecessors of those companies got, phenomenal amounts of money compared to what those individuals had previously got with other roles. Mm. And, and they made fundamentally bad decisions about what the future of those companies could be. At, uh, at Polaroid, you know, Fisher just didn't see that, uh, that, uh, that the, the, the film business was going to get destroyed. He refocused on that. At the time, his predecessor had, had moved away from it. He took it back onto that. So it was just really a bad decision. Not a bad guy, not a slouch. You know, he talked about in one interview, he hadn't had a holiday in five years. You know, so there was, this wasn't a case that they had been venal or lazy. But also it was a case where just paying them a lot more money or dangling big carrots in front of them hadn't made them better managers. And the truth is, the more you think about that, how exactly the human mind is meant to work. Um, would you really think if you said to somebody, I'm going to give you, you know, $10 million tomorrow to invent a new something or other? I mean, you know, as opposed, I'm going to give you 1 million or I'm going to give you 10 million. Do you think your ideas are going to be much better? I just, I, it doesn't, mm. in both ways, the challenge of making a good decision is, is equally difficult. Uh, and both of those, 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 those propositions, a million or 10 million, are really attractive. So you can keep mm. your job as a chief executive, get paid a lot of money, or you can keep your job as a chief executive paid and get paid an, an indecent amount of money. You know, you want both of them, but the challenge you face is still the same. And I, that's the problem that we have with the executive pay uh, uh, at the moment. It's not tackling that problem. Mm. I, re I rarely see that as part of pay more than status. I feel like CEO, uh, the, the role of a CEO is obviously tied to the pay, but I think a lot of perhaps CEOs do it or they like the position due to the status and the, the ability for them to be able to, to make decisions based on the fact that they are help, help, help holding those positions of, of power? You know, I, th I think that there are definitely some chief executives, and my previous book was about BP, and we saw there John Brown was somebody who clearly liked to be involved in major political conversations around issues like the environment, for example. Um, and so I think that's that's definitely the case. Interestingly, on the pay, that is sometimes a status issue, and this is something I've discussed with chairman of companies. The chairman is the person who leads the board and is primarily responsible. In one sense, you could say for policing the chief executive. He's the chief executive's boss, and they'll tell you that uh, with respect to chief executives, they might not care in one way about the money that much. They might say, "I'm." personally equally happy getting six or 12 million but their own perception of status might say yeah but the guy down the road is getting 12 million so yeah. if you pay me six then it makes me look like a bum so you know yeah. today, for them that 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 is definitely the status thing you mentioned actually can also contribute to them to, uh, wanting to get paid more yeah, definitely. I, I think that's the human nature aspect of it. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch upon actually was in the book, you talk about equality. And there was the Margaret Thatcher quote um, that claimed, quote, uh, opportunity means nothing if it means uh, the right to be un unequal. So I thought that was an interesting quote. And obviously, she was quite adamant on that. And with the deregulation that she, she, she put in place in, in Britain, there's a big push at the moment, especially in 
the UK and the US, a big push on the left to have more of an equal society, but that's more of an equal outcome rather than equal opportunity. Where is there a place in economics where there's a system where equality doesn't become this contentious issue of outcome rather than opportunity? Because I feel like economics is being used as a political motive for a conversation that doesn't really involve economics in my mind. I, I, economics would say that it's, its primary responsibility is to help increase utility. So it, it looks not primarily at, at the, the equality issues. And that's why in the book, you know, I primarily look at, at, at tackling economic, these, these false economic truths on the basis that they don't say what they, you know, they don't do what they, 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 they say they want to, can achieve. So some people say the problem with economics is it doesn't care enough about equality and it, that leads to bad outcomes. What I'm saying is, well, that, while that might be true, uh, economics also isn't very good frequently at making us richer. So economics, it is so in some ways unfair to ask economists to solve the problem of, of equality. However, I would say one thing, and that is that economics can entrench, uh, help entrench uh, inequality. And I think that the, the overarching uh, the neoclassical model does lend a moral defense to inequality. And you cited Margaret Thatcher there. Mm. And I'm, what I mean by that is two things. One, if you look at the basic area of, of wage setting, and this comes back to the minimum wage and why people think that 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 uh, wages, uh, minimum wage had to kill jobs. And the idea was that labor markets are efficient and that means people get paid you know, the amount, the value they create. So what you earn reflects the value that you add to the economy. Mm. And that's because markets are, are, are efficient. Now, there's two ways you can look at e e equality. You can, as you mentioned, I mean, apart from the outcome or, 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 or opportunity, but if you look at the outcomes, you could say that person is earning that amount and that person is earning a, a, you know, a lot more because that person is that much more productive than that person. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, you might say, well, that's not an equal outcome, but it's a, it's a fair one. Um, now, but the truth is that those earnings aren't necessarily indicative of their contribution. You only believe that because you believe that markets are efficient. But as soon as you remove that assumption, then that moral defense of that uh, inequality is harder to sustain. Mm. Uh, and also then you have the other issue, which is you know, leading off that, that Margaret Thatcher quote that you mentioned is that this idea that inequality, you know, while we may not like it, it actually is, is a positive force and lifting up all the boats. So yes, you know, if you, you know, I guess the argument is that, okay, some boats will go higher than others, but actually they're dragging everybody up and, and, it, and it leads to a better outcome for everybody. Everybody, you know, people might be down here and then, but okay, we allow some inequality and then everybody can, okay. So, um, and again, you know, the, the, the facts don't support that in the way that, you know, supply-siders and others 
mm-hmm. say they would Thatcher, you know, you know Thatcher's growth record, you know, during her tenure wasn't that great. This is this is you know we we tend to think it is, we tend to just assume it is, but it's incredibly. This data is available. Mm-hmm. GDP per capita, check it. You know, wasn't fantastic under the Thatcher years, though I may you know agree with much that she has you know done. It's it's not about tackling a record per se, just on that particular that 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 metric, which we sometimes assume is there and it isn't. So the um, I think that there is that issue with economy, economics. Unfortunately, the theory does give a intellectual and and a sort of moral justification to inequality that I don't think is actually intellectually rigorous. Mm. So while I don't think that it's always fair to look to economists to solve inequality, I think it's fair to challenge them on their defenses of it. Yeah, that's interesting because we recently had uh, a professor of black studies on the podcast and he wrote a book on the new age of empire and he was saying about how the slave trade has created a system essentially where the economic system that we have is exploiting certain minorities and that's an entrenched system and in that book he basically links white supremacy to capitalism and the economic model and i was thinking or, or one of the things i want to discuss with you about is do you think when you, with your experience of economics and speaking to these individuals and CEOs who this person who wrote this book would consider to be white supremacists in the sense that they are entrenched in this financial system, do they have this thought process or do you think that they are just working in an environment that was there and, and they're just acting in that economic model? Um. I think it's interesting. I mean, I think in terms of executives, they, one of the things I mentioned in the book is an inter-job interview I had where I, I didn't really distinguish myself by, by, you know, confiding. It was yeah. one of my first job interviews. Yeah, that was a good story. That, that I thought, well, you know, why do you study economics? I said, well, because it told me how the world worked and, and the guy kind of almost laughed at me. Uh, but um, basically, so you have, a, so many executives uh, will be skeptical about economic theory and they wouldn't use that those kinds of theories or assume uh, price sensitivity to be such an important force in the way that they run their businesses. Um, of course, on the other hand, if somebody's talking about an economic theory to defend them getting a $10 million bonus, I'm guessing they're not going to challenge that theory. But nope. um, so, <laughs> but so, I think, I think that's, that's the, I think that, you know, but I think that there is a tendency um, on the part of a, of a lot of you know executives. They're they're clearly usually people who are very supporting of, of free markets, um, insofar as that's their advantage. I think it's a really couched thing because obviously businesses are incredibly good at lobbying for market adjustments to benefit themselves. And, and also, of course, to do that without really uh, seeing there's a contradiction. So, you know, you could look at someone, a company like ExxonMobil that uh, I followed for years covering the oil sector who go around uh, saying that governments should get out of you know, trying to determine oil prices and just let investment flow and do what it does. But is incredibly quick to seek uh, government support for its own business. So, uh, you know, I think that executives <laughs> will definitely take advantage of whatever uh, economic thinking exists. And they will say sometimes, well, you know, that's my job is to take care of the shareholders. 
So I think that that they would do that. I, I think that you know whether there's anything more that they you know they seek to perpetuate some system i think that i wouldn't say that's necessarily there maybe you know the impact of somebody behaving mm. or in, a, in a way that reflects what's gone on before yeah. um, and not not changing that i mean definitely that that there's not a lot of challenge you find some executives that think more about sustainability and really try and build that into their their business models you have some people some businesses who do think more about having uh, more balanced boards it could be in uh, in terms of, of women for example um you know so and, and and so so i think that there are people and they and they may well do that um you know for a reason that they also think it, it generates value I mean, one of the things is, you know, if you have everybody who looks the same, talks the same, you know, similar educational backgrounds, probably going to have some very similar thinking. And obviously the banking crisis was a pretty good example of, of this, that there wasn't anybody saying, you know, I don't know much about this, but I got to say this looks a bit weird. You know, <laughs> you know we needed somebody who had a different perspective on things. Uh, yeah. And it would, would have been very helpful. Um, so unfortunately, you know, we probably don't have an, enough businesses who are, who are seeking to change some uh, some paradigms. Definitely, I think there there needs to be a push, obviously, for for the diversity aspect in in these businesses and and perhaps in the economic model. I just found it interesting when he claimed that everything was at the basis of white supremacy. I just thought it was interesting, um, was an, it, was an, it? an interesting observation. Yes, I mean, I think you know, if you, if you look at things, I mean, you mentioned about about diversity that you know, if you look at the economy you know why well, you know what the success looked like and it's very difficult you know to me at least to to you know you know to me if i look at growth and development of the economy you know inclusion has got to be part of that i mean you know we, we we're ideas we're increasingly an ideas based economy mm -hmm. um you know why does growth rise very quickly and you know in, in, why does production production grow really quickly in a war um well suddenly women are allowed to work you know so your gdp goes up i know it's not exactly the kind of circumstances in which you want your gdp to go up but what i'm saying is it really shows that inclusion can have a positive income uh, sorry a positive impact indeed on income mm. and i think that there is an argument uh, a very clear argument that uh, that equality or diversity or just you know behaving in rational way <laughs> allowing people to make a contribution um is to everybody's material as well as you know moral uh, betterment yeah definitely definitely agree with that one thing i wanted to touch upon as well was uh, you you talk about syntaxes in the book and i wanted to relate this specifically to to climate change because we had uh, bianca nogredi who is a freelance writer she wrote a book on climate change. And I wanted to discuss in the book, you talk about sugar taxes, you talk about tobacco taxes. I wanted to talk about the price and non-price factors and the efficacy of both, because the book is very centered upon price factors being economics is very much viewed through the lens of price and with the supply and demand curves and is prices the king, if you want to, if you want to call it that, is there, should there be more attention to the non-price factors? of behavior when it comes to these syntaxes? Uh, and can you compare a syntax, let's say on sugar and alcohol to perhaps climate change in the way that we behave that way? Well, 
I, one of the things I say in the book is, you know, you ask an economist what the answer is and you're always going to hear its price. And what that means is in the specific area of syntaxes is when you're saying we want people to do less of something, well, the economist answer is, well, change the price. Because human beings are rational actors who really only look at one factor, which is price. So therefore, if you want to change their behavior, change the price. And if that's how you define the rational actor, yeah, that's the outcome you'll necessarily most likely come to. Um, the, the problem is, you know, when you actually look at the world and what happens, that is frequently not the case. And if you look at, for example, I talk about um, you know the, the the cars in the U.S. Um, automobiles, excuse me, and uh, basically, you know, the U.S. It was really interesting in the Obama era. Um, you know, Cass Sunstein was brought on board, a really big name economist, famous for the book Nudge. You know, a, a, a liberal economist, um, but but very much an economist. And although he's involved in behavioral economists and all the modern bells and whistles, mm. he was still somebody who was incredibly wedded to the concept of the importance of price. And what that meant was when Obama looks to him to come up with policies which would reduce fuel consumption uh, by motorists, the natural inclination he has is to look at a carbon tax and to look at taxes on fuels as being by far and away the, the most efficient and effective way to reduce the consumption of, uh, of gasoline, in that case by, by, by American motorists. Now, that is intellectually beautiful. It, it, it fits, it all hangs together. The problem is that the track record doesn't show it. And as I said in the book, the time that, you know, Sunstein, when he comes into office, they've just had a decade of the biggest oil spike, price spike in history, pretty much. And oil prices have gone from $10 to about 150 And in the United States, where there's not a lot of tax on um on fuel that had led to a massive increase in prices. Nonetheless, best-selling vehicles in America at the time were F-series trucks. Yeah. So I think that really showed the, the 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 difficulty in relying upon price signals. Whereas in the, in the in Europe, on the other hand, the prices because because the 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 uh, taxes were so high, uh, and because the currency had strengthened. Basically, the, the, the increase in fuel prices over that period had been incredibly muted. Nonetheless, uh, fuel, fuel economy in Europe had increased very significantly, far uh, more better performance than the United States had made, which I think really just shows that, that regulation can be much more effective than, than prices. And you just need to look at, at, at the world and, and, and look at you know, what happens in the world to indicate how you believe the world works. That's that's all I'm saying, really. Mm. It's just a much more effective way than than saying, okay, well, the world looks works, you know, like supply and demand curves determine the way the world works. So, okay, so let's just start plotting that, the, the graph. Um, so I think to, to start with the way the world is does inform us that when it comes to tackling mm. climate change, we really do need to think very hard about regulation. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it, what you're referencing to there was the blackboard economics, wasn't it? The first thing you have to do is go back to the graph and then the graph determines the world rather than the world determining what, what, what you actually need to do. 
Absolutely. You get 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 the data, then you can plot a graph. Don't don't draw a graph and then try and fill it with data. That's one way to yeah to, to back up your existing your existing way of thinking about it, which I think a lot of people do. Uh, I think a, a great way to end this, and then we've touched on many many different topics uh, in the book. I wanted to sort of ask your your thought on this is what do you think is the main takeaway that you'd like the reader to take from this book? Because there's a lot of information that's dense. There's a lot of explanations about core economic concepts that perhaps if people don't have a understanding of them, perhaps can be quite overwhelming. So I wanted to ask you, what what is the one takeaway you'd like a reader to get from this this book? One thing I'd like to say to people is that the the easy answers that we're and simple answers that we're frequently offered, they may come to us frequently from political leaders rather than economists directly, but they're frequently citing economists and existing theory when they offer it. That these ones do not have the intellectual backing that that is claimed, mm. and consequently we should be skeptical. And to simply believe that we can magic growth better by tweaking prices and tweaking taxes and things here and there, you know, it's a much more difficult process to become healthier, um, to become, uh, you know, to make the environment, you know, in a better place, etc. And that these will require messy decisions by government. It will require sacrifices by us all. We can't just cut our taxes and have more money to tackle the mm -hmm. environment. Um, but that that these are the ways that we'll have to go about solving these problems. It's, 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 it's going to be a messier business than we might like it to be. But there are no free lunches. There you go. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Thank you, Tom, for taking the time to speak with us. Where's the best place that people can, uh, can find you online? They can find me at my website, tombergen.net. They can also get catch me on Twitter, where they'll uh, see, learn about developments around the book and also about my day-to-day -day reporting, reporting on um, the kind of skullduggery that goes on in the financial world. And um, <laughs> yes, so they're, they're the best places uh, to get me, or they can also check on Reuters.com and see what I'm writing there as well. Perfect. That, that comes up on Twitter too. Thank you for taking the time to discuss uh, your book, uh, Free Lunch Thinking, How Economics Ruins the Economy. Tom, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Anne. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more content. Also, visit our website, www.booktalktoday.com to subscribe and download the latest edition of our magazine. Join our mailing list to receive the first issue for free to get a taste for the value-packed content that we are offering. Book Talk Today, for readers, by readers.